0: Hi everybody, I am excited to uh, speak to Dr. Corey Schuler today. We're going to be talking about all things relating to the elemental diet. Uh, he's quite an expert, and I think that you'll find this conversation to be, um, you know, just really useful clinically. And if you are a patient, I think that, you know, again, you're just you'll you'll still find this information to be useful and valuable to you, and perhaps something you want to introduce your doctor to. Uh, a little background on Dr. Schuler. He is the director of Clinical Affairs for Integrative Therapeutics and is an adjunct assistant professor at the School of Health Sciences and Education at New York Chiropractic College. He practices integrative and functional medicine in the greater Minneapolis-St. Paul, Minnesota area. He's a member of the Institute for Functional Medicine and the American College of Nutrition. Corey is a certified nutrition specialist, a registered nurse, licensed nutritionist, and earned a Master's of Science degree in Human Nutrition and a degree in Chiropractic Medicine. Corey has been going to school for quite a while. <laughs> He's a fellow at the American Association of Integrative Medicine. Corey, uh, Dr. Schuler, welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Yes, and it's actually really nice to talk to you again. Um, I, You and I have worked in the past together, and it was really fun, and I'm sure... This conversation will be no exception to that. All right, so let's just jump in. Talk to me about what an elemental diet is.
1: Sure. Well, an elemental diet isn't new. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not hawking a new book and a new style of eating. Um, an elemental diet has really been around for. Um, for decades. The 1940s is really when it started and I'll share a little bit more about that. Um, but it was used primarily in hospital type situations. So an elemental diet was um, or is food in its elemental forms, to be very honest. It's uh, instead of protein in like a, a protein shake that you might have every morning or, or whatever, there's no protein in it, but there's protein equivalent. All of the protein that you would get from an elemental diet comes in free form amino acids as mm-hmm. an example mm-hmm. and the fats we don't use um, long chain fatty acids or or more difficult to digest fats Fats usually relatively easy to digest but even that we make sure that it's a medium chain triglyceride or um an easy absorbable fat and then same goes for um picking out which carbohydrates to use for an elemental diet. It's not these complicated, um, difficult to digest carbohydrates with a lot of fiber in it, but rather the most easily assimilatable uh, carbohydrates that are typically proximally absorbed in the small intestine. So basically, it's like a big shot of nutrition without requiring a lot of digestive energy Mm -hmm. to get those nutrients into the bloodstream and circulated.
0: Yeah, good. Okay, that's wonderful. Um, Nice uh, description on it. And then talk about, you know, this, what it, you know, what we're using it for. Um, Do we use it to treat different conditions? Are we using it, uh, you know, as life as a form of lifestyle medicine or something else?
1: Yeah. So this is, it. I mean, essentially you want to think about is, is dietary management for a very specific moderate to severe, uh, dysfunction, typically GI dysfunction. Mm-hmm. So in the literature, we've seen it used for, um, inflammatory bowel disease like Crohn's disease. We've seen it used in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is a variant of, uh, irritable bowel syndrome Um, we've also seen it used for sort of non-gi or sort of that remote manifestations of gi dysfunction like rheumatoid arthritis there's a lot of good evidence in there uh, as well as other types of digestive issues like eosinophilic esophagitis, which you mm-hmm. you know you only have heard of if you've had to study it for medical boards or if you have it yourself, but otherwise you typically don't. Uh, but what that is is uh, you have reactions to a lot of different foods, uh, and it's a mast cell um, activation disorder. So I thought it was a lot more rare, but then I started yeah. seeing it being diagnosed, and it sort of goes through. You know, we see it pop up again. So that's what elemental diet has been studied for. It probably has more applications than that. But that's what we really know is it's good for. Um, it's not a you asked about it is a lifestyle. So I just was going to answer that. Uh, this isn't like, this isn't the new version of paleo, or it's not the med- Mediterranean diet. It's not something where you're like, Oh, I have um, I have one of those conditions you just mentioned, I'm going to be on the elemental diet forever, because it's going to make me feel good. It's not at all like that. It would be thought of more of like a procedure, rather than a, a lifestyle. So we see it used anywhere between, well, one to three days in the short side of things, but um, up to like four weeks, maybe at a time, it's an entirely liquid diet. Think of it like more of a procedure for the dietary management of those conditions.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And so it's it's always medically supervised. And um, well, we're going to talk more about the mechanism of it or the mechanisms of it in a minute. But you know, um, it, it i is. I've I've also used it for well, this EoE would fall into this, the eosinophilic esophagitis. For, but for my allerg, my severely allergic patients and that and 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 have benefited they've benefited from it all right so now you know again you've just given us the reasons why one might use it but are people you know are people using it for weight loss or um you know to attempt to achieve ketosis i don't know if you could because there's plenty of carbohydrate in it but i'm just wondering if anybody's using it for these um I'm sure people are considering using it, I I should say, for these off-label reasons, and I just wanted to throw it out there and get your opinion on um, whether or not this is even remotely appropriate. Yeah, well,
1: I'm a, I'm a simple guy, so I'm going to answer the easiest questions first. Um, it's typically not in alignment with ketogenic-style eating, so I'm a big fan of using ketogenic diet um, as, a, as a great therapy for a lot of different, you know, a growing number of reasons. Mm-hmm. But this contains carbohydrates and, and easily yeah. assimilatable carbohydrates. It would If you were in ketosis, it would take you out of ketosis. So um, it is not really – it's not designed at all for that. It's not consistent with that. Um, so that's to be clear no um however um the question is about calorie restriction weight loss um, i'll just back up a little bit this is really designed for people who are or hyper they're they're not getting enough nutrition in they're um, not quite to the word cachexic, but they're losing weight they can't maintain mass and so elemental diet is really designed for, for people to maintain that mass rather than to lose it however with everything and and if we kind of believe the laws of the you know the second law of thermodynamics we can probably figure out that if you wanted to manipulate calorie intake you could do this and i have uh, a couple of instances where we have used this over a period of a long long time either as a a partial elemental diet or even a whole elemental diet to mediate those people who are um, morbidly obese Uh, we've had people who've needed to lose well over 100 pounds and this is something that they just have to like change their track really significantly and so they need this sort of like pause pivot and shift and this elemental diet has been useful for that but it really is not designed for that especially with its uh its higher glycemic content there is carbohydrates in it
0: right right but you're reducing the calories there considerably so they're probably burning through those carbs as energy rather than turning on insulin um you know, insulin and making fat and so forth, I would that's imagine. Yeah. yeah. Boy, that's interesting. So there might be a place for this. Is, is Has anything been published on that, Corey, or is this an off-label?
1: That is entirely off-label um, use. We just know that clinicians, and I throw myself in the bucket, I was really hesitant to use it um, in that way, but then I had actually a couple come to me specifically with that question can I use this for that kind of like your and I always listen to that little voice in my head saying this isn't a coincidence maybe I should you know, supervise while while we go ahead and try this and it just happened to, to work in those situations
0: yeah that's interesting it, it you know I have a host of weight loss resistance resistant individuals and you know just jump starting with a few days of this could be you know could be something to consider okay well thank you
1: yeah I And with that, with that, before we move on, I just want to say that if you're in a weight loss program and you're, you're supervising someone doing a weight loss program, um, usually if you look at a label of an elemental diet, you'll get a little bit of a sticker shock, right? There's a fair amount of carbohydrates. So you just have to really think through all of what that means instead of having that gut reaction of, Oh, there's carbohydrates in it. Oh, there's simple carbohydrates in it. I can't use it for weight loss. No, what, what you described are the that it's not necessarily stimulating that long-term insulin response because there's, you know, you have a calorie deficit. That's the way we need to be thinking about it, but it's still, that's not the, that's not the intent.
0: Well, and the other thing is, um, yes, I get it. I get it. So we can consider it, think it through, but no, this is not a paleo diet, right? Right. Right. All the, the, all of the macronutrients are present. Yeah. And uh, it's, just going down this path a little bit further, and then I'm going to walk, I, I want to just come back to talking about using it as it's supposed to, but um, in, you know, given that obesity has been associated with microbiome dysregulation, pretty, you know, we, I mean, I know we haven't nailed down any conclusive patterns, there's suggestions, but giving, you know, this, this extent of a you know, almost a bowel rest, you're, you're, you're certainly changing the microbial pattern um, as well. And so, you know, I wonder if that's a piece of its efficacy, um, you know, with regard to weight loss, if it's helping to augment the microbiome in a pretty radical way.
1: It certainly could be. I mean, we've looked at a couple of different thoughts on that process, right? Um, How certain antibiotics may be useful as adjunct you know treatments in weight loss and we've looked at things like major shifts in macronutrients yeah. can alter the microbiome considerably so it's we're in that theoretical space of uh, I don't know maybe but when we have a person in front of us who's who's suffering and we have yeah. tried everything else we know then I think there's options
0: yes that's great well you know, it'll be fun to talk to you about this in a year because, you know, you will be, you'll be gathering loads of data, not just in your practice, but I'm sure you're going to hear from clinicians far and wide and we'll certainly keep you apprised of what's going on in our practice. Um, so, so what's talk to me about cool. the research behind using the elemental diet
1: yeah so the research isn't uh done necessarily by one you know group sometimes we we find it useful to sort of follow a group and watch sort of what they do with with research because we can see how they're we can see how they're thinking just by reading their abstracts uh, if you will um but it's been studied for now a, a number of years pretty uh, you know pretty well but I want to just sort of up my Introduction into the research is sort of scattered and it's scattered for a reason Mm -hmm. because that's the way it's coming out Um, in (laughs) I believe it was 2000 um, so I'm jumping right into the middle of sort of the thick of elemental diet research Uh, in 2000 Uh, Dr. Mark Pimentel out of Cedars-Sinai Hospital in LA found that if you could normalize microbiome um, through, or normalize lactulose breath test, which is the breath test for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, uh, IBS symptoms would reduce. And so uh, irritable bowel symptoms affected essentially with uh, antibiotics. And so he took it a step further and four years later published this really neat uh, article about how he took consecutive IBS patients who had a positive lactulose breath test, so they're positive for small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, and treated them with elemental diet. So they were on 100% soul food, soul nutrition, elemental diet for two weeks, and then on day 15 would measure that lactulose breath test again, and if they normalized or basically were SIBO negative, then great they you know they won they didn't have to continue with with the elemental diet and uh, we would analyze their data later but if they were still positive with the lactulose breath test he kept them on the elemental diet all liquid all elemental diet for another seven days and then would analyze their data at the end and so interestingly enough he saw a pretty substantial change in the lactulose breath test and he also saw as that lactulose breath test normalized symptomatology normalized in these IBS patients and so that sort of changed our direction or thought process about how to use this elemental diet and we'll talk about mechanisms how it works why it works why he went with that and all that Um, but before I do that I wanted to share just sort of the other sporadic evidence if that's okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, and actually, before you jump in there, Corey, can you send me um, either the papers or a link to the abstract? And I'll I'll include what you mentioned on the transcript page. So people can ask. Yeah, I have
1: a a handful of abstracts I'll I'll be able to send your way, okay?
0: Perfect. Thank you.
1: So a couple years later, um, a different group entirely. Uh, looked at uh, rheumatoid arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis during exacerbations uh, typically is given a a steroid taper. And so some people don't tolerate that or they can't handle the glycemic consequences of steroids or they've just been on it for too long and they haven't cycled appropriately, whatever they they can't use it. And so this there's a group in 2007 that published a paper, a pilot trial that looked at elemental diet for two weeks um, instead of the steroid medication uh, during exacerbation. So we saw improvement in rheumatoid arthritis symptoms. So less joint pain, um, I think less fatigue, as well as, an, uh, uh, as a kind of a side benefit of the, uh, the increased nutritional you know, dietary management using elemental diet. So really neat there um, because were they,
0: an, Were they able to avoid the steroid taper? I'm assuming yes
1: yeah i think they were actually you know there were already individuals that couldn't do that um so they were they were allocated away from instead of getting prednisone or for for 15 milligrams a day they were given this is again it was a pilot trial so it was just sort of the early stages yes but really exciting because ra is kind of hard to deal with
0: sometimes that's right that is a great study
1: yeah so exciting about that um We also thought, and this is now let's jump in our DeLorean and go back in time. We'll go back to, to 1984, um, where a group looked at acute Crohn's disease. So it used to be called regional enteritis. Um, Crohn's disease was the idea that, uh, there's going to be these really massive, this massive inflammation in the bowel. So that's why it's part of inflammatory bowel. And they used, uh, again, uh, elemental diet for a long period of time. They used it up to 12 weeks and they showed that the elemental diet could be, could improve Crohn's disease as much or more than the steroid treated group. So this thing's been around for a while and seen some neat stuff that I'll for sure get you that one. And that one's actually free on PubMed. So you could read the entire study. That's the um, O'Marian study that we uh, often look at. Mm-hmm. So a few others, but mostly the one that I would like to show, and I get really excited about this. And this is where my – if my nerd hasn't shown yet, this is where (laughs) it, like, Let the
0: nerd emerge. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I
1: (laughs) – so I, I love I love things that you that we know work acutely and see how or if yeah. they can work longer term. Like that's always the thought process. And I already mentioned that the elemental diet is not a lifestyle. You don't live on this thing. Um, it's a procedure. However, what do you do if you are? real sick and you end up in the hospital with your problem well that was actually addressed in 2006 individual published in 2006 addressed much earlier but um this group um, a japanese group decided that you know what crohn's disease patients during exacerbation Often end up in the hospital. There's bleeding and mucus in the stool. They lose a lot of, uh, you know, they have electrolyte imbalance. They lose a lot of water. um, And we just can't replete them. So they end up in the hospital on IVs. And what do we do for those people? So the idea was is that what if we could get them stabilized, let's say in the hospital or at home? Once stabilized, could they be on like a half elemental diet or a partial elemental diet? Mm. and do that. And does that change, you know, Mm -hmm. those relapse rates? Does it reduce relapse rates? Or or do they have the same number of exacerbations? And so what this group did was uh, they offered half elemental diet, So half of the individual's calories came from this liquid diet, half of it came from foods that they would just choose on their own. And um, then the other group just ate as they would. And they followed them for a long time. On average, they followed these patients for almost a year on doing this type of procedure. Uh-huh. And their, the relapse rate in the half-elemental diet group was significantly lower than in the free diet group, um, which is just fantastic because that means reduction of hospital stays.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That it means a lot. And I mean, I'm assuming if they got to choose whatever they wanted to eat, that they might be eating actually some problem foods. For them, you know, in this era of of carefully looking for either celiac or gluten intolerant or, or gluten sensitivity or, you know, dairy sensitivity, et cetera, et cetera. Were they if they were consuming any of those common antigenic foods, those common foods we pull people with um, IBD off of um, plus using the elemental and that reduced their um, their flares to that extent. I mean, that's pretty remarkable. Do you follow me?
1: It is, and and what I would say, and I think that the term that we all want to gravitate towards is we're because even the people that were on the half elemental diet, they could pick their they could pick bad foods for themselves too. I know, like, I get, yeah.
0: That's so
1: we're I mean. we're reducing that antigenic load, like the total load of problem things is reduced. So that's the cool part, and that's the the term that I teach patients about, like. Because I, I always talk about you know food sensitivities and and intolerances sort of like a a bee sting right if you have a little bit it's not it's not the amount that you have it's the the occurrence or the exposure so you can't cheat just a little bit I don't want you to reduce your dairy intake I want you to eliminate it and I make a big deal of it but what I learned from reading this study is I'm probably a, a, a little bit wrong I'm still going to tell that story because I want strict adherence to um, an elimination diet yes but when I'm talking about long-term strategies, um, reducing is better than, um, than just free, free diet. So that's cool.
0: Right. God, that's so fascinating. It's great study. I will look to, I haven't, I haven't seen it. So I'll like to see that reference. I'm sure a lot of people will. So I just literally just, you know, a couple days ago popped a, a blog up on my website. It's like, it's just a survey of different biomarkers to assess gut health. And, um, you know, as I was doing it, I was talking about, you know, chronic inflammatory conditions that are associated with the gut. And of course, you know, the range is, um, neurodevelopmental, neuro, neurodegenerative, um, you know, cardiometabolic, of course, autoimmunity, allergic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's massive, right? It really encompasses almost all of the conditions we're working with in in functional medicine, where we're working with complex or or chronic illnesses. Um, Thus, you know, the trajectory our conversation is heading on, you know, where we're getting in there and reducing the antigenic load, as you say, and really manipulating what's going on in the gut. You know, the sort of the, the thinking with how the elemental could serve us you know, is 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 extremely far-reaching, and I am sure, Corey, that you've thought about the application. You know, given that so much, so many illnesses are sourced to um, the gut, or a significant pathogenic piece is sourced to the gut. So, anything on that? Any thought on that?
1: Yeah, I think that the that the model used for rheumatoid arthritis is really the. You know, yeah that's what's interesting for me because if you talk to uh, a conventionally trained rheumatologist you know RA is a, it's a condition it's a joint condition it happened the immune system involved because it's autoimmune condition you talk to a functional medicine or integrative medicine practitioner and a, any immune system problem is a gut issue yes. so it makes it's so easy for us to make that leap
0: yes. but
1: uh, sometimes it's harder for others. So do I see the far-reaching effects and uses of this? Uh, absolutely. And, and I'm cautious because I never want to outrun my claims, right? I never want to say, oh, we can treat this and we can do this. My, some, uh, one of my professions does that routinely, and I try to avoid that. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I like to do is stick yes. with the evidence. But then also, like I said, that person suffering in front of me who we've done already are things that we know how to do for, this is one thing to reach for. So I'm excited.
0: Yep. Well, you can do, I mean, as long as you're paying attention and you control the duration and they're, you know, safe to embark on this, it's a, it's a therapeutic probe. You know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it can be a safe, if used appropriately, a safe therapeutic probe. And, you know, you're testing your hypotheses in a safe manner. I just think that's, that's really awesome, Corey. Um, All right. Let's talk about mechanism of action or mechanisms of action yeah. and um you know just maybe talk about some standard of care interventions like you know you for in, thinking about small intestinal bacterial overgrowth using rifaximin neomycin etc so let's sort of comp- let's look at the mechanism for elemental and then kind of expand it and do some comparison
1: Sure. Uh, This is, this is so cool. (laughs) Um, And the reason that it's so cool is because this is a fairly simple dietary management intervention, but the mechanisms aren't exactly fully illustrated. The one mechanism that we've already brought up is to reduce total antigenic load. And, and that just means that we're using hypoallergenic ingredients in the elemental diet. I mean, imagine when you talk about food sensitivities, like usually we're sensitive to protein. So even like the protein in corn or the protein yes. in soy. Right. And so this doesn't have proteins in it. And you have to kind of go back to early biochemistry to know that, you know, there's a, a quaternary structure of yes. protein. These are very complicated. They fold in on themselves and they interact with themselves right. and other proteins. They
0: look like steel wool, actually.
1: Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and so it could, but imagine, okay, great. Let's take that. Let's take the steel wool and then let's pull it all apart to its individual threads. And yes. then let's take a tiny little wire cutter and, cl- and crimp it every half a millimeter, and every half millimeter, that's your free form amino acid. Yeah. And so instead of swallowing steel wool, you're swallowing that half millimeter of wire. And that's a lot. Don't don't swallow wire, anybody. Um, <laughs> but. <laughs> but for the analogy this works really well um, and that's that's how broken down it is so there's the immune systems not reacting to that steel wall it's it, it's allowing that amino acid to be assimilated so the low antigenic load is a primary mechanism um, the other thing is just allowing filling in nutritional gaps so that's where the dietary management piece comes in uh, a lot of these people are malnourished even if they're mm-hmm. overfed yeah and yep. malnourished. And then the third piece, and this is more specific to small intestinal bacterial overgrowth and the thought process that I believe that uh, Dr. Pimentel went through was that if antibiotics can reduce the, um, the colony count of the commensal bacteria or the good guy bacteria that is supposed to be in the large intestine, but it's in, in the small intestine. Instead, it's translocated. It's traveled north, if you will. I want to be able to reduce that load. So antibiotics, we know, have been effective for that. What if I just take the fuel source of those Commensal bacteria and I and I eliminate or reduce it What if I can get the human body that I'm working with to absorb those nutrients before those nutrients ever get to where those Microbes are and so um, this idea of elemental diet most of it is proximally absorbed or relatively proximally absorbed in the small intestine Whereas most small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is a, a distal Uh, colonization of these commensal bacteria within the small intestine. So that was the thought process. What if I take, if I just reduce their feeding, if I reduce feeding of of microbes, then they're going to, number one, they're going to go into a hypometabolic state. They're going to be like bears hibernating. They're just, they don't need to eat. They're going to just reduce their activity. They're going to reduce their metabolism. And by reducing their metabolism, they reduce their output of maybe the things that we don't want them to be producing. And then some of them will actually pass away because they can't survive that hypometabolic state for a given duration. And so the colony count will go down because not everybody's going to survive. And so we might have some left, Uh but they're already in this uh, lowered state. So I can reduce that count. And that would then essentially be the reason that we would normalize the lactulose breath test. So long story to get there, but that was sort of the primary idea of using, um, using it in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. And that is contrary or just slightly different to the mechanism of how the standard of care is. And you asked about that. So I'll, I'll try to answer that the best I can. Um, right now, a lot of times rifaximin, which is the, uh, luminal agent antibiotic, uh, is used to reduce those colony counts. And instead of, you know, doing all that reducing, you know, bringing it into a hypometabolic state, it just kills everything. Like it goes in, it goes in a shooting and um, breaks that down. And depending on if it's diarrhea dominant or constipation dominant, they'll use uh, constipation dominant usually is neomycin and, and diarrhea dominance, usually uh, erythromycin or low dose erythromycin. But that combination of antibiotics um, is, is uh, antimicrobial specifically. So it doesn't reduce the feeding. It just kills and so that requires the microbes to be active because if you put in those antimicrobials in when the uh, microbes are in a lowered or hypometabolic state they're not going to uptake the antimicrobial stuff they're not going to take up those killing agents so it's a different idea you actually want to feed the bugs when you give antibiotics and you want to not feed the bugs when you're on the elemental diet and so Actually, what we've learned or what we're learning is that they kind of can be a nice one-two punch. You can bring the, you can lower the, the hydrogen results, you can lower the methane results pretty significantly with elemental diet for a couple weeks and then start feeding it again. And you can do this really strategically by using something like partially hydrolyzed guar gum or another high FODMAP food so then you increase their activity really quickly and then you hit them with the antibiotic dose so the elemental diet and then antibiotics in combination can be really fantastic
0: and then how are you dosing the guar gum
1: the guar gum i think that the studies showed five grams of of phgg
0: are you are you using the guar gum approach I've, i've tried it limited
1: so I don't, cause I can use food instead. So we just okay. pick, we pick out, um, strategic high FODMAP foods that are useful, um, yep. that people will tolerate. Um, now the challenge with that is it's not measured and it's not, and some people overdo it. And so we do run into a little bit of problems with that, but I prefer food whenever I can. So that's what we do.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. You could do a structured, so you could give them and just strongly encourage them to follow a food map protocol where they're actually measuring for a period of time. That makes sense. And yeah. then I'm assuming, you know, just knowing you and my approach would be going with um, botanical antimicrobials before I reach for and unless somebody's really, really unwell. Any opinion on that? So you've you, done your, you've done your elemental, you've, now you're giving them the sort of the, the map challenge and you're going to go in with a kill agent. What, what are you using?
1: So I can tell you what I'm using, but I can also tell you that everybody reacts differently. Some people yeah. react super well to the antibiotics. Um, some people react well to the elemental diet, don't need further treatment. And some people do best with the antimicrobials that the nice thing uh, about the conventional agents is there's not that much to choose from. You just sort of, it's like a an algorithm. If they have constipation, it's neomycin or faxamin, you know, and, and, but that's not the case necessarily with the, um, herbal antimicrobials. Uh, there's a little bit of yes. a, there's a little bit of talk that suggests that, um, the allison uh, from garlic is the, really the best approach for, um, for the methane dominant or the constipation dominant SIBO. Um, but then we have all these other options like, I use a lot of berberine. So mm-hmm. that I'll tell you, I'm a berberine guy. I love yeah, berberine. Sure. I'd go, I'd take a, a bath in berberine if I could. <laughs> I just love it. So, um,
0: yellow hue. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. I love alkaloids. Oh my gosh. Um, so berberine's my, my friend. Um, there's two versions really of berberine. One is, uh, a, a variety of berberine containing, uh, plants. So Oregon grape and golden seal and Philodendron, all these different plants that contain berberine and other stuff, is one way I like doing it. But you can also get berberine as an isolate. And uh, it seems like the SIBO community has gotten really aggressive about uh, dosing berberine. So yes, um, right. I've I've heard the the recommendation of five thousand milligrams of berberine a day, but I don't uh-huh. necessarily know any of my patients that would tolerate that dose. So I usually recommend about 2000 and a mix of those herbs that contain berberine. So berberine is probably going to play a role right after an elemental diet. And if I can, I'll get into a little bit more, um, uh, a little bit other herbs. Uh, I like neem, for example, that's been yeah. a popular one in the SIBO community. Um, and, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of other ones that I, I use independently. Well, oil of
0: oregano has been used. And yeah, oil of oregano,
1: actually, I, I find a lot of resistance to. Um, it. It's Unfortunately, because it's super powerful and it's really broad based, really broad spectrum, um, and I love it. And the challenge is that people who've already been down this path a little bit, who've maybe used oil of oregano for a long, long time, don't have the same response to it, just like you'd have antibiotic response or resistance to it. Um, so I'm a little bit sad about that, but I do like oil of oregano.
0: Uh Uh-huh. Okay. So in really refractory SIBO, basically oil of oregano is probably not your friend. What are you, so in which case you're looking at neem, which I agree with you, I think it's great, or alicillin and, and, and berberine, and you're using a berberine concentrate plus the botanicals. This is fabulous. You guys, I'll, I'll make sure I pull out some of, some of these pearls Dr. Schuler is sharing with us so that you have, um you know, ready access to them on the transcript page. Um, you know, I'll tell you what, it would be interesting. I, you know, obviously the microbiome is changing considerably because the, the breath test changes. But has anybody done baseline and follow-up stool testing using elemental? Has that been done to your knowledge? I don't,
1: know if it, I don't know if it has. And, I mean, the stool test is really testing the, the colonic uh, colonies, uh, not the small intestine colonies. But you so would – think-
0: but you would expect to see an influence, wouldn't you? It's—I mean, at least a down—some maybe a secondary influence.
1: Maybe and they um,
0: connected.
1: they're connected. they are are certainly connected. They're—they're they're very, very connected. Well, but.
0: and you're—and you're—and <laughs> you're radically altering the diet.
1: Yeah, uh, you think that they're and even if we give you know there's been studies that show small you know tiny amounts of, of probiotics 1 billion colony forming units changes the microbiome in and relevantly in the stool so we do know that yes there's going to probably be significant changes there but it might not be the changes that we expect so for example in the at least the study that i'm uh, thinking of the the probiotic that was fed wasn't the probiotic that we saw increases in colonies in the large intestine it but it does change the community based on those interactions. So it's really complex. I don't know if it's predictable, but yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. I think you have to see some changes. I just don't haven't seen the studies on it. If there are any,
0: I mean, well, and you know, just anecdotally I've used, I've used this particular elemental diet um, in um, ulcerative colitis Mm -hmm. um, and with, you know, with, with, great outcome i mean just short-term nip some flares in the bud and um and this yeah. was on the um descending the descending colon was actually the actually was was really the the the, the site of the most significant of inflammation so considerably downstream it seemed to be useful and um in well in one person i've used it actually multiple times i think with 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 decent outcome, but in the, the the one guy I'm thinking of off the top of my head, just great, you know, just really a go-to for nipping flares in the bud. So something's happening and it would be nice to, it would be fabulous to study it. I hope that you do. (laughs) Um, So talk to me about you know, for practitioners who haven't used an elemental diet, um, some things they should know going into it.
1: Okay, so yeah, there are some things that you can do and sort of keep in mind if you're either supervising someone on elemental diet, or if you're using it yourself, um, just some things that we can pay attention to. So for example, I, we've been talking about using uh, antimicrobials. Um, that's a common question that I get, especially in the SIBO world. Do you use the antibiotics or the antimicrobials during the elemental diet or do you wait? So that it's a little bit mixed. I know that some people will do They will mix it. I don't mix it just because of some of the mechanisms that we've talked about. But um, I, I think that there's rationale to do it the other way too. My preferences to separate those out so both antimicrobials and antibiotics i would put after the fact of elemental diet um probiotics in the use of there's again split decision here Uh, some people say anytime you use antibiotics you should be giving a probiotic so if the treatment is to use you know these antibiotics or antimicrobials, we should be giving probiotics. Whereas others, especially in the SIBO community say, you know, we should probably wait about three months to really just before we intervene and give more uh, probiotics, we don't necessarily know where they're going to colonize. So that three month waiting period after a negative test is probably where we want to land. So if there's no SIBO, but they have Crohn's or you said ulcerative colitis, or we're dealing with it from a different perspective, I think probiotics are our game, um, along with or outside of elemental diet. Um, but not necessarily, uh, they have to be.
0: What if somebody has a particularly pronounced nutrient deficiency? Um, well, iron, I'm assuming if they're anemic, obviously you would probably still, you'd still be supporting with iron, not probably, but, um, you know, anything else like, like, so concurrent nutrients,
1: concurrent nutrients or, um, or uh, medications, I say if you're if you need them to sustain your status, you stay on them. And so if you're taking something, any kind of medications that you're on, and that includes natural medicines, if you need to be on them, otherwise, you're going to deteriorate your condition, then you should stay on them during the elemental diet, because it's just over and above the nutrients. Um, There's a little bit of a caveat to that. And sometimes nutrients are especially some supplements are carried in things that aren't the best for you and can, I wouldn't say interact, but they can, they're antigenic. And so if you're trying to reduce the antigenic load, but you're taking a a, a supplement that might have some antigen properties to it, it sort of defeats the purpose of having this low antigen diet. So that's one thing to pay attention to. Most of the time, practitioners are are well aware, they're very keen to those sorts of issues. And so they can help you through that if that's, uh, that's Mm -hmm. what's going on.
0: You know, on that topic, what about somebody you know when we see this all the time in practice um proton pump inhibitor induced SIBO I mean are what, what I mean are, are you tapering are you are you going to work on tapering them off the PPI before you start or can or get them I guess actually getting them on the elemental and then maybe slowly tapering them off while they're on the elemental I mean what are your thoughts around that?
1: You got me in a box here. There's no, <laughs> there's no good way around that one. Um, it That's definitely where the art um, supersedes yeah. any sort of science. If you've already tried tapering off and, you know, moving from a proton pump inhibitor to an H2 um, a- antagonist, you're going to have some, um, if you've already tried that and it hasn't worked, then maybe elemental diet can be used. Anytime there's a, a PPI involved, you are going to get poor absorption of certain nutrients, which I'm sure you've covered multiple times in various media. So um, I won't belabor that, but that will always be a challenge for, um, for an individual. The nice thing about this is that, you know, the gastric acid, the hydrochloric acid that's produced is required to help unravel those proteins and quaternary structures. And then it then relies on activation of um, uh, pancreatic enzymes but if they're, you're already clipping down into free-form amino acids those things don't need yes. that level of upper digestion so right. kind of a neat way of going about it
0: so it could actually be part of your whole yeah i mean i think we could actually use this for the folks who are who are struggling with tapering but but you know additionally they all present with this small intestinal bacterial overgrowth at least quite frequently yeah um, as well Um, Okay. Well, you know, just really useful stuff here, Corey. It's great. Uh, Talking about what happens after. So uh, you're using it to treat IBD, SIBO, you know, some of the other applications we've been talking about. Um, and, And you already have, with regard to SIBO, talked about what happens next, and you cited some research around you know, uh, around Crohn's disease, but you've been on, if somebody has been on the diet for, you know, a long chunk of time, two to four weeks, um, what's the transition process?
1: So food reintroduction is actually a a fantastic topic and it's one that hasn't been really tackled appropriately. We've all had our noses down on how to fix SIBO and, uh, And we're managing SIBO, but we see a higher level of recurrence. And there's actually some, there's a a Korean study, I believe, that looked at that specifically about this really high recurrence rate. Um, And so the challenge is, how do you make that work? And so it has been a, uh, it's a very individualized food reintroduction plan, Um, I'll share what I do just to give people sort of a a launching off point is when somebody comes in and we're going to go down this path of using elemental diet, the first thing I have them do is make a list of their well tolerated foods, foods that they know that they don't have any reactions to. And so they list out their foods and I say, good, we're going to take that list, we're going to put it in our back pocket, and it's going to come back out when we're finishing up the elemental diet. And the next thing that we do, is um, after the elemental diet is done, we we do, we dig it back out of our back pocket and we say, okay, we're going to use these well-tolerated foods only don't introduce new foods. um, But you can move on to the excuse me, half elemental diet. So you're still getting the nutrients while we transition and add more things. The goal of food reintroduction is to broaden their dietary choices, not just Like well beyond what they had well tolerated before I want them to be able to go back into society and eat regular foods and be social and all of that and not feel like they're isolated so the, the usually we look at things that are high water content foods that are well tolerated oftentimes soups and broths even clear liquids are going to be useful for that the more water content and basically the more volume um, you consume that's going to help stimulate motility and that's what we really need to do we need to kick motility into yeah. gear again so we're moving things in the right direction yeah um, so that's uh, that's the short answer there's not a great answer to this those who have, those of us who've been doing sebo work for a long time sort of have our ways of doing it but that's not widely applicable what works for patient A almost never works for patient B. And that's a frustration that uh, a lot of clinicians like myself experience.
0: Now, let me just ask you about motility, because I meant to ask you this earlier. Um, Any interventions you're using concurrently? You know, as your band diet for motility specifically?
1: Yeah, so I split motility into two big sections. I say macromotility, and that's just are you pooping, or do you have diarrhea, or are you constipated? Um, And then the micromotility, which is harder to measure, but clinicians will know this term, um, migrating motor complexes. We need to stimulate that neurophysiologic response and migrating motor complexes are typically active when we're not eating. So, you know, when you eat food, you bite into a piece of food, that bolus of food makes its way from front to back in the gastrointestinal system. And so that's the macro motility. But then when you're not eating, there's also this like neurophysiological wave, this housekeeping wave that keeps things going in the one direction. So, um, We talk a lot about in the SIBO community about prokinetic agents and there's some really good ones out there um so i like n-acetylcysteine we talk about n-acetylcysteine for a variety of uses but this is one that helps with that a lot a prescription medication low dose naltrexone which is often popular in autoimmune type cases Um, and there's an essential oil called d-limonene that if you dose it high enough typically about one gram that can be useful as a prokinetic agent um artichoke ginger um and then 5-htp which if you don't you're not using ssris can be used as a prokinetic agent so motility is the name of the game with SIBO not necessarily with Crohn's ulcerative colitis or the others but when it comes to SIBO we got to keep that motion going from from mouth to the other end
0: yeah perfect okay and then just one other question um in this area I have so I've used the I've used elemental very short-term to clean the slate you know for somebody in a flare I've used you know in my SIBO patients up to up to a week or so I've not um, I have not gotten I've not worked with anybody in prescribed who's been on it longer than one week so the two to four week uh, time period is it seems like compliance would be an issue. and I, and I think I, I suppose thus far in my practice, I've, a week has, has, seems to be sufficient um, to, to start the journey and, and begin to turn them around. But, um, but I do understand that that's a shorter time, especially you know, as compared to what um, what's been used in the research. So just talk to me about compliance with people doing this. I mean, I suppose the fact that they feel so much better is, you know, it, it helps to ensure compliance, but what are your thoughts?
1: Yeah. I'd actually relate that adherence issue more to, um, or more similarly to fasting. You know, that there's people that uh, the first 48 hours, 72 hours of a, a fast. And I use, uh, I use my clients who uh, practice and, and they do, uh, They participate in ramadan and the first few days of ramadan are extremely difficult for them because they're only eating within certain windows Um, but that type of fasting you sort of get into a rhythm you hit your stride and you realize what's going on Um, and that is sometimes reduced calorie intake the thing about elemental diet is you shouldn't necessarily be hungry like you you aren't lacking calories you aren't lacking nutrients but what you are lacking is the environmental cues of food. Like you're not chewing anything. And that has some pretty important physiologic consequences. Um, You're not smelling the food because it all smells exactly the same because it's a formula mixed up in water. Um, So there's some other things that you might need to use to stimulate that. And those are some tips and tricks. So I I recommend things like, unless you're allergic um, to be around like flowers and plant life and even animals just to get more olfactory or or smell stimulation in your life and um, also the consideration of, of chewing um, not that I most gums are actually a, a terrible idea um, because they contain lots of crazy things but if you can find a natural gum that actually helps stimulate uh, that that mastication that chewing reflex and that can help people get through this time period as well um, So I don't really worry as much about that. It's just, it's getting them through that first couple days, um, which you've already done if you're doing it for a week. The challenge with doing it for a week is that, you know, how I talked about the mechanism of the hypometabolic commensal bacteria. If we're not doing it long enough, not as many colonies will will Mm -hmm. pass on. We won't drop that colony count significantly. So um, just for numbers sake, oftentimes rifaximin treatment will drop hydrogen counts by like 30 parts per million. Whereas an elemental diet might drop um, hydrogen counts by 150 parts per million, so we have a significant, powerful um, tool. Uh, but that's over the course of two weeks. If you used it shorter, you'd probably just get less of a less of a, a drop, and that's okay. Some people don't need that much.
0: hmm Okay. All right. Good. Thanks. Um, all right. So let's just talk about the products. There are. You know, as you started this conversation, there are some products that have been used in, you know, the hospital setting and so forth. And, um, you know, there was the original product created by Cook in the 1940s. Um, And, you know, just talk to me about, like, about quality. I mean, we need something of really impeccable quality now. And um, I'm imagining Cook's probably... I, well, I'd be curious what was in cooks, but anyway, what do you have to say about that?
1: Yeah. I, I, I misspoke. It's, it's Rose, Dr. W.C. Rose. Um, who's was cook Rose. Um, but Dr. Rose in the forties was the uh, original um, mean person that created an elemental diet and he was feeding <laughs> his graduate students. So just to, I'll give you that historical consequence. He was at the university of Illinois and he combined cornstarch, uh-huh. sucrose, wow. butter, fat, corn oil, um, some salts, and some uh, known amino acids, and then he threw in some liver extract uh-huh. so that he could get some of the vitamins that he didn't really know what was going on with and
0: yes. hadn't been quite
1: identified. And yeah. then, because he was so nice, he flavored it with peppermint oil.
0: Interesting. Wow.
1: And then he fed this to uh, his grad students, <laughs> 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 like some form of torture. Um, and it wasn't uh, like the taste was obviously a huge issue. Compliance like, didn't exist. But if you were forced to do it, you were forced to do it. So a- another guy named Burl Crohn, and that name should sound familiar. Uh-huh. Um, who recognized Crohn's disease, obviously. Um, he helped reformulate that a little bit. And but taste was never really an issue because a lot of times this elemental diet, as I mentioned, it being in hospitals, was it, you weren't you weren't tasting it. It was either given through nasal jejunal or um, or. It was through a, a tube uh-huh. or a peg tube, which went right into the, you know, the into the thorax. So taste wasn't as big of an issue, but then as we started using it for people like, Oh no, we're going to try to keep them out of the hospital. We had to give them an ambulatory formula they could taste and, and tolerate well. And then there was one that we had to help with the, uh, you know, taste after the fact that they left the hospital. So um, taste has become of interest as well as sort of the, hypoallergenicity. uh, That has become more of an issue. Corn syrup and and butter fat uh, probably aren't going to be what we want to use in today's hypoallergenic society. So we have to be careful about which nutrients there are. And then we have to pick which macronutrient ratios we want. Usually elemental diets have about um, 40 to 75% of a person's, um, excuse me, Fourteen. excuse That's t- terribly wrong. Uh, protein, <laughs> protein, protein, protein um, content between about fourteen and eighteen percent of person's caloric needs. Maybe up to twenty in some um, of these formulas. But what I've done is I've looked at all the different formulas on the market, and that's pretty standard. What that does is if you have if you consume eighteen hundred calories, you're getting anywhere between about sixty and ninety grams of protein equivalent um, in your. Elemental diet. So that's That's it's on the short side of things, but it's pretty good. You know, it's a minimal amount. Mm -hmm. However, the carbohydrate and fat um, levels are all over the board depending on the the formula you use. There are fat um, levels as high as 43% of total calories and as low as 6%. Um, now that 6%, you don't really want to use for very long at all, unless that person just doesn't tolerate fat at all, but you end up with a fat insufficiency pretty quickly using that type of formula. But so fat range is uh, dramatic, the fat range is dramatic. And then the carbohydrate range is complementary to that. Usually the carbohydrate is sort of the last thought. Uh, we want to get the right amount of protein. We want to get the right amount of fat for the condition. And then we fill in the, the carbohydrate level with whatever is left
0: well you know so the but the other piece is that you know there's all the all the essential nutrients being added being supplied i mean what are the generally speaking in your observation the quality of some of them
1: um depends on your definition of quality um most of them are made by uh large or are at least emerging um, food or uh, dietary supplement type of manufacturers. And so quality from like a, there's like not microbial content or not heavy metal content. That's usually all on the up and up. There's no, I won't have any issues with any of the products on the market for that. But what I do have a concern with is the choice of certain ingredients. Like um, where where are they getting that from or Not necessarily what's the original source, but have they evaluated, is there remaining, if they use corn in there, is there corn proteins in my elemental diet at the end? Like that would bother me. Um, So if it's free from corn, free from wheat or gluten, uh, free from soy, I want to make sure at the end of the day, those those are not in the formula anymore, if they ever were. Mm -hmm. So that's where the quality sort of uh, makes a difference. And it's interesting because all the micronutrients that we have to have in sort of perfect balance in elemental diets because we don't want to overdose or underdose anybody because we're using this exclusively for two to four weeks. um, Those each have their individual sources as well. And so Mm -hmm. there can be carriers and challenges with those that have some antigen potential. So uh, from that quality perspective, I think you have to be ultra careful and really know your manufacturer pretty well in order to have confidence that you're getting the right thing.
0: Right. Right. Well, um, I, yeah, I have just been really thrilled to, to have access to this particular elemental diet in my practice. And I think it's just, you know, and and actually what you've offered today, Dr. Schiller is, has been helpful to me and I'm sure it's going to be helpful to anybody who's listening to this and, and either is using elemental diets. I think you've given a lot of pearls to just make our, you know, our application much more robust, you know, for tape rings for prefer bringing people off and how to do that, you know, and some of the you know, some of the medications or some of the botanicals, et cetera. I mean, just really soup to nuts here. You've put forward a real, a, a, a lot of great ideas and I just want to thank you so much uh, for joining me and everybody listening to the podcast. Again, head over to the transcript page where we will have contact information um, for Dr. Schuler. We'll have links. Uh, we'll have all of the abstracts to the research he's mentioned and um, you know, you'll just be, you'll have all of the, these wonderful pearls at your, at your fingertips. Thanks, Corey. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.